I have a lot today on my heart to share with you guys. And in some ways, I found it difficult to land on what to narrow myself down to. But I'm really grateful that all of you are here on this day. How wonderful is it that in the past two Sundays, we've had to, the opportunity to experience Christmas and now New Year on a Sunday and to be at church on New Year's Day. So if you weren't here earlier on the service, I do want to congratulate all of you on your perfect church attendance this year. Well done, and uh, hopefully you can maintain that as best as you can. Well, with every single new year, we're reminded of new opportunities to dedicate ourselves to something good. And oftentimes, if you go online and read a list of the things that you can dedicate yourself to, people oftentimes think of things like exercising more, or losing weight, or getting more organized, or learning a new skill, learning a new hobby, living life to the fullest, traveling more, and all things that are worth enjoyment and and worth pursuing in very many ways, but a lot of us struggle to remain committed to those things. You know, I think our spiritual walks can look rather similar, can they not? Where we commit ourselves to different things that we know God is calling us to, but yet some of us, at different times, at different stages, fail to live up to the standards through which God calls us to and which we are dedicating our lives to. Today I want to take time to look at some scriptures that we had left a month ago. If you would remember, we were in a series called In the Beginning, where we were going through the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Well, it was on November 20th, I believe, that I was scheduled to preach this message, but as you know, our family was devastated at that time with having to be in the hospital for, I think, five days it was, to care for our youngest son, Everett. I had written this message during that time, and the message title was called The Plan. And I felt elated as I rescheduled this message for today, as I realized what better title for a message on a New Year's Day called The Plan, as we all are making new plans for this year. So I pray that it would bless you. And if you would join me once more in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can be here on church, at church today. I pray, Lord, that we come with expectation right now for you to feed us. That, Lord, even though I'm the one speaking, Father, I pray, Lord, that we could all leave this place with a sense of your presence in our life. Lord, with the sense of our spiritual lives being nourished, not just by my words, Lord, but by the things that you want to speak to us today. So I pray for just that, Lord, that the words that I choose would have the impact of your words in our lives, Father. That we would have eyes to see what you are doing in our lives, ears to hear what you are speaking in our lives, and that we would leave this place, Lord, not the same, with a fuller understanding of who you are. 
Lord, convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted in. Encourage us in the areas that we need encouragement in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I had said earlier, the title for today's message is called The Plan. And in order to understand this message a little bit more, I need to take us back to when we were last in the book of Genesis. If you were to remember that series well, we were in the book of Genesis for, I believe, four weeks, and this would have been the fifth. And for this week, we were going to be in Genesis chapter three. We were specifically going to look at the life of Adam and Eve after they had eaten the forbidden fruit. We call this the fall. However, what happens after the fall cannot be overlooked. In fact, I would say that most of us who know the story of Adam and Eve mainly know the story around Adam and Eve's fall, but seldom understand, few understand the story that happens right after the fall. We're going to be looking at those verses today. And instead of kind of reading bit by bit, what I'm going to do for us today is I'm going to read the section that I'll be preaching on in its entirety in order to hopefully carry us through this message in a way that will help us understand it better. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bibles. I'm reading out of the NIV version, but you're welcome to read out of whatever translation uh, sits best for you. Um, We will have the verses on the screen as well. I'm going to be reading from verse 8 through, I believe, verse 24. So if you would... Read along as I read aloud. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So just as I had said earlier, right, this happens, this moment happens right after Adam and Eve's fall. And God's word says, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I'm going to be touching on this verse because this verse in particular has great spiritual importance 
throughout, throughout the rest of Scripture. So if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I encourage you to do so. Verse 15 specifically. Moving on to Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, to dust you will return. I'll stop there for now. Now, I want to ask you a question. The question is, what did Adam and Eve specifically do when they heard God coming to the garden in the cool of the day? We just read it. You said it correctly. They hid. Now, that, I find that very interesting, and I think so should you, because I think that is very common for us as people, Right? When we do something wrong, we typically have two common ways in coping with it. Many of us will hide because of our shame, right? Or sometimes we hide because we don't want to be confronted by the individual who understands our wrongdoing. So what does Adam and Eve do? In this moment, they hide from God after they had sinned against him. You see, sin always pushes us away from righteousness. If God is a righteous being, this very well illustrates how sin always causes us to withdraw from God's presence. Because so often we do not want the shame that comes with being in relationship with God after we've done something wrong. And we do this not just with the Lord, but even with people around us, right? I know of an individual who when he makes a mistake or because of certain issues in his own life, he will literally avoid others because being in their presence causes him to have to confront those feelings that he has of insecurity. And we all know somebody like this. Maybe they don't like the number that they see when they step on the scale, so they avoid certain kinds of people because it makes them feel guilty over that number. Maybe you know somebody who, or maybe yourself, you do this. You avoid certain groups of people because you know that they might, in you, expose some of those things that you are insecure about. Now, I think our society has done a great disservice in being able to lovingly confront people in in behaviors that are wrong, and oftentimes I think our culture is headed in a bad direction with coddling people over the things that they feel anxious about or stressed about. Now, you might be saying, Pastor Kevin, what is wrong with 
caring for people who are stressed or anxious. What I'm, I'm not trying to say that loving people is a bad thing, but what I am trying to say is that oftentimes we hide when we know we've done something wrong or when we know that we have something wrong in our own lives. And Adam and Eve are doing just that. They are hiding from God. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is what areas of our own life do we hide from God with? Is there an area in your own life that you are hiding from God? I know sometimes, I've seen this happen multiple times, where people will avoid going to church because they're afraid of what happens when they get here. But so often if people are willing to push back, push past those feelings, they'll realize that what they will experience is better than their fears. You see, we have a wrongful understanding in thinking that when we sin against God, that God will only greet us with punishment. When so often, as parents, we understand this very well, that we rather our children run up to us in their mistakes than hide from us in their mistakes. I know this already as a father and as somebody has cared for children through many years, that I prefer a child to come up to me and confess their mistakes. In fact, if they do that, I'm oftentimes much more lenient in how I deal with this child and his discipline because I don't have to worry about teaching this child how to be honest. It's amazing how you never have to train a child to hide when they've done wrong or to lie when they've done wrong or to avoid people when they've done wrong. It's natural for them to do that. In some ways I say natural, but in reality I should say it's natural because of the sin in our life to hide. We need to realize as God's people that Jesus already paid the penalty for our mistakes. That's exactly what we've been trying to proclaim over this Advent and Christmas season. That that's why Jesus came into this world, to live a life that we could not live. It's why we have all of these candles still lit today. Because Jesus brings us hope, peace, joy, love, and light into our lives. That when we retract from God and hide ourselves from his presence, the only person that we are harming is ourselves and perhaps the people that we have offended. But we are doing ourselves no favors when we hide. And we need to be mindful of this much. We need to realize that being found by God is better than hiding from God. You know, my son, Theo, who I probably need to start paying him for all these sermon illustrations he gives me. (laughs) Um, He loves to play hide and seek with me. 
He's been this way since he was a child. And one of the things, I, I guess he, that's a funny thing to say. He's, he's been this way since he was born, I should say, not a child. He still is a child. Well, one of the things that Theodore loves to do is, is after he gets out of the shower, I'll bundle him up in this special towel that we have. And this towel is totally oversized. So he can lose himself in this thing. And what he often does, even while I'm holding him in my arms, is he'll put the hood over his face. And of course, because he can't see me, he thinks he's hidden. And he wants me to play hide-and-seek with him in that way. And some of you are probably laughing because you remember your own children doing the same thing. Well, what he'll say to me at that point is, is he'll say, Daddy, can you find me? Daddy, where's Theodore? Where's Theodore? And he wants me to say, where's Theodore? Where I'll hear him muffled through the towel saying, where's Theodore? (laughs) And you see, he doesn't understand hide and seek at all. You see, he doesn't understand that the purpose of hide and seek, the joy that you're supposed to have in hide and seek is in the hiding. But you see, as a child, his joy is not in the hiding, but it's in being found. He wants me to find him. Do you want God to find you? Or do you hide from him in your sins, in your mistakes, in your shortcomings, in the things that you are insecure about? Church, we need to let God find us. When God called out to Adam and Eve, he asked a question, where are you? Now, I believe that God knew exactly where they were. Otherwise, why would Adam and Eve hide, right? God was obviously in their presence, but yet he remained hidden, that is, Adam and Eve remained hidden from him. So God offers an opportunity in this moment, I believe, for Adam and Eve to willingly announce themselves and be the individuals that go to God. But the pressure builds, and Adam finally announces where he is, and God calls them out of hiding, and Adam and Eve begin to tell them, tell God, that is, why they were hiding. And Adam specifically says that he was hiding from God out of fear. If you didn't know, the Hebrew word here for fear is Yahweh. Not Yahweh, but Yahweh. And what's interesting is, is that this is the first time fear is used in Scripture. And Scripture will continue to use this word fear repeatedly and repeatedly. And oftentimes it's even associated in certain points talking about the fear that we are to have with God. But I believe that the fear that Adam is experiencing this moment is more a fear driven by the shame that he feels in his wrongdoing. For eating the tree from knowledge of good and evil. You see, what's interesting to me, though, is not just that, God, that Adam feared God. It's how Adam handled, and Eve, handled God confronting them in their sin. Notice what happens here. When God tells them 
where are you? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, he then follows up with a response from Adam. And let me just turn back there so that I can read along in my own Bible. And listen to the dialogue that happens here, because I think it's very insightful to our own lives. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And God replies, who told you you were naked? And then he directly confronts them. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now listen to Adam's response here. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. It's interesting how just literally a few verses ago, in the chapter that we just left, Adam referred to his, his woman as what? Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, my wife. And then now, how does Adam change his tune over how he views this woman next to him? He, he shifts the blame to God. He blames God for this woman, and he says this, the woman you put here with me. God, in some ways, this is your fault. This isn't my fault. This is your woman that you gave me. It's kind of like when you have children and when they're misbehaving, right? They're always the, the children of your spouse. They're never your own children. <laughs> You've seen this happen before. But isn't it interesting how even being confronted in this moment of sin, Adam deflects his own responsibility and does what? Places the blame on somebody else, specifically his wife. We all do this, do we not? We all play blame games with each other. You know, one of the things that really, really disturbs me about this time that we live in is how much people struggle to take personal responsibility. Personal responsibility is a quality that has been lost for many people. You know, just yesterday I had the misfortune of reaching out to somebody. Um, my wife and I, we were on our way to the grocery store and we try to go as a family as often as we can. I figure if we're going to spend that much money, we should all see it together. <laughs> so we were on our way there, and we were reminiscing of past congregants that, that we'd enjoyed relationships with at some previous assignments that I was at. So we were thinking about this one couple in particular that uh, always put a smile on our face. They were a lovely couple. They had been previously divorced and, and they were remarried now. And we always thought it was funny that they were closer to our parents' age than our own age, but yet they were technically newlyweds and we were further along in our marriage than they were, even though we were, you know, half of their age. But they were a great couple and a great delight to be with, so not trying to lose out on this opportunity to reach out to them and share them with them this kind memory. I reached out to him and I texted this individual. Well, a few hours went by and I received a text reply and I was very saddened by this text and I was told that they had parted ways. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, I always have been confused by that terminology when people get divorced. Parted ways, as almost like that happened as a stumbling. Now, I think that oftentimes we try to downplay the struggles that we go through. And don't get me wrong, I understand why people use that kind of terminology, but in reality, I think the more fitting example of this situation would have been we've broken our vows. The vows that we made before God and others, we couldn't keep that commitment to each other, and we broke those vows with each other versus saying we parted ways. Now, I know it was presumptuous for me to assume that maybe they were ungrounded in their divorce. But considering that it's more likely that you will get a divorce than remain married, chances are most people are getting divorced for ungrounded reasons. But what surprised me the most about this text message was what followed after saying parted ways. And this individual specifically said it was inevitable. As if it was like a ball rolling down a hill. It was what fate was going to dictate regardless. As if there is no sense of personal responsibility. Look, I don't mean to beat up on this person. That's not my goal. But my goal is to shed light on the fact that we struggle as people to take personal responsibility. Anybody who's been married knows that marriage is not easy, that it is tough. But marriage is so often a tool to be able to grow us as individuals to a better image of what God created us to be. That is a very hard thing to do, but statistically, it has been proven that those that oftentimes will be willing to fight these things through, to put their own selves aside for the sake of their marriage, their family, their their spouse, that in most relationships, they will see a better day. We struggle with personal responsibility. And that was something that not only Adam struggled with in this moment, but Eve struggled with likely. Adam was blaming Eve, and then Eve in in turn was blaming who? The serpent. Church, we need to take personal responsibility for our own struggles. Look, I get it. Life is not always easy. Life can be very difficult. And hopefully in this new year, you have made some plans to pursue things in your own life that will lead you into a better direction, that will be habits that are worth forming. But the reality is, is that whatever habits you have already formed that work against those good habits need to be dealt with. And the only way that you can deal with it is by taking personal responsibility, by not hiding from God, but pursuing God and letting God and his people be a positive influence in your life to grow towards a better end. We need to take ownership. We need to be honest. We need to realize that God only desires our good. And I know this because what happens directly after Adam and Eve share their blame game with God 
we see something unfold here. Now, many of you probably focused on all of the difficulty that was expressed in this moment. The thorns and thistles that a man will have to go through in trying to earn a living or or provide for himself, or the childbearing, right, being increased. And that's kind of what we focus on when we think about the fall of humanity. But what we fail to see is that verse that I asked you to underline earlier today, and that's specifically verse 15. And in verse 15, I'll repeat it once more. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is speaking here to the serpent, who we will later believe and understand as Satan. And I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan or the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, most biblical scholars are in unison here that this verse is what's called the pre-gospel, the pre-evangelical gospel, meaning that right here, God is in some ways prophetically demonstrating what the plan will be for Jesus Christ, that Jesus would come through a woman, And that through a woman's offspring, life would come through. And that Satan might injure people, might strike the heel, and as we know, strike Christ. But ultimately, what will happen? The serpent's head will be crushed. That Christ may be injured, but he will be victorious. So right from the moment that Adam and Eve fall, what happens? God makes a plan for redemption, which is my big idea for today, that God is always working to restore. I'll say that once more. God is always working to restore. Allow this new year to be an opportunity to be reminded that God is always working to bring restoration in your life. If there is an area in your life that feels dead, then know that God wants to bring life to that area, that God desires for you to be a transformed person. This means that if you are broken, you can confidently say God is working to restore. That if there is a relationship that is broken in your life, that you can say God is working to restore at least the relationship that I have with him. If you feel that your life has passed you by, you can confidently say that even if I die in this life, that God will restore me in the next. It is never too late for God to restore you. This is why verse after verse, book after book, from Genesis onward, we see God devising a plan, 
pushing history forward to bring us to the person of Christ. Israel is just supposed to be the vessel through which Jesus would come into this world and bring light, not just for the Jews, but also for all people. God makes good on his plan to bring restoration. And Christmas was a reminder for all of us of this truth. That God is always working to restore. Amen? It's why one of my favorite scripture verses, which is one that is not quoted enough in my opinion comes from the book of 2 Samuel 14, 14, when David was having anonymity between his own son, a lowly widow reminds him of this truth and says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. It's why later on, Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 5, says this truth of the person of Jesus. Just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, who is he speaking here about Adam and Eve, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, who Jesus, the many will be made righteous. This is the work of God, church, to restore. And God wants each of you this year to be a representation of that. If you do not have restoration in your life, if you do not have joy, hope, peace, love, light in your own life, how could you be a witness to the world? Church, let God restore you. Let God make something beautiful out of you because he desires that from his very fiber and core, which is why Genesis 3.20 is so often misunderstood. But I believe Adam understood what God was saying to him here when, he, when, in, when in chapter 3, verse 20, Adam names his wife, what? Eve. Because she would become the mother of all living. Almost to say, God, I know that through this woman who I've blamed, she will bring restoration to my people, that one day Christ will come and give us the life that we have broken. That's what God wants to do for you. Let your 2023 plans be one of restoration. Great if you want to travel more. Great if you want to lose more weight. Great if you want to become more organized. Those are good things. But don't let those be the only things. 
let the plans that you make align with the goodness and the restoration that God wants to bring in and through you. My heart was burdened earlier in this service, and it's why during the congregational prayer time I felt it fitting to say that we need to pray for God's church to be the light that he's calling us to be. Because far too often we are not as committed to God's work as we ought to be. Church, we have a unique opportunity to be restorative people to others. Social injustice, racial injustice, poverty injustice, all these things. Mental health. You don't think God wants us to be a part of being a light in all those areas? Of course he does. Be that for somebody else. Live that out. Because the world doesn't know how to do it. But through God's strength, he could do it in and through you. Amen? God is always working to restore. Which I'll give you a big idea, part two. If God is always working to restore then what does that mean about you? That you need to always be working to restore.